0: Welcome to Retrofitted. My name is Rebecca Godlove. This episode contains a warning for discussions of sexual assault and incest because, hey, it's in the Bible. I didn't write it. Please proceed with caution if either of these topics is triggering for you. When I was in college, I took a playwriting course with Professor Bob Levy and several of my fellow theater majors. One of the assignments was, if I remember correctly, which I may not because my aging memory might be deceiving me, was to create a short play of our own. Now, I don't recall the exact requirements, the length or theme or anything like that, but I do remember that I wrote a short musical because I'm a little bit extra. And I wrapped the whole story around about six songs by the band Queen, again, because I'm extra. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't good or anything. I literally don't even remember the plot. It was probably something like Flash Gordon or some corny, campy, sci-fi fantasy thing. I mean, parody is still my preferred form of theatrical expression, but I hope, hope, hope I have improved since then. The point, though, is not my nation playwriting skills. The point is that I was in the thralls of something else kind of new in my life. I had just discovered that there was so much queen beyond Bohemian rhapsody, and I wanted to explore it. And for the record, the musical "We Will Rock You," featuring, of course, songs by Queen, had only just been released in London at the time of my ridiculous skit, and I didn't know about it until halfway through the writing process, so I was convinced I was onto to something completely original at the time. We've all made mistakes. According to the scathing reviews of We Will Rock You, however, at least the critics' reviews, there is a chance that my shoddy little one act might have been better received, so I'm going to hold on to that fantasy. I have been a fan at some point in my life of many different kinds of music. Classical, pop, country, R&B, oldies. Yeah, I understand that list is still pretty Eurocentric. I'm working on expanding my Amazon playlist, so if you do have any types of music or musicians you do recommend, please send me an email or a comment on the website. I get excited to celebrate different forms of art, so you just might make my day. Anyway, all that to say that after the hundreds of different kinds of singers that I've heard, I am still convinced that there has never been, at least not in living memory, a voice like Freddie Mercury's his singing range was just over three octaves, where the average range for a trained male singer is just above two octaves, maybe. So even without looking at anything else in his life, Mercury was set apart. He was also a prolific songwriter who used vastly different styles from album to album, and even from song to song on a single album. And he was a refugee. In 1946, he was born Faruk Balsara in Zanzibar, which is an island in the Indian Ocean. I'm only telling you this because I didn't actually know myself, so now we both know. Zanzibar was, at the time of Mercury's birth, under the rule of Great Britain, but today it is a part of the country of Tanzania. Mercury spent his early years in India, but his family fled to Great Britain in 1964 to avoid revolutionary violence and genocide. Had they not escaped when they did, the world most likely would never have experienced the innovative, expressive, brilliant glam rock band known as Queen. One of the things I love about this group is that despite the gossip and endless rumors, many still unconfirmed about Mercury's sexuality, vices, and quirks, is that there are plenty of songs in their catalog that are not about sex or partying, Unlike the suggestive and outright explicit music of a lot of their hairband contemporaries, the lyrics in songs like My Life Has Been Saved, The Miracle, and The Show Must Go On are introspective and borderline spiritual, which gives them big points in my book. Because of the unbelievable variety in their body of work, I could practically have chosen a song at random and found someone in the Bible to connect it to. The one I did choose, though, reached number three on the British singles charts and was never actually performed live until after Freddie Mercury's tragic passing in 1991. However, a music video was recorded on a soundstage with Mercury, and from the energy and electricity with which he performs, you could never possibly imagine that he was a man dying of AIDS. I want it all released in 1989, was written by Brian May and inspired by his second wife, Anita Dobson, who was said to be a driven and very ambitious woman. May also sang backing vocals for Mercury On The Track. I Want It All is a powerful anthem of rebellion, youthful confidence, and social unrest. It's pretty heavy. While there are actually several characters in the Bible to whom this song might apply, there is a particular young man in the Old Testament who reflects the potentially disastrous combination of the themes reflected in this song. His story is one of deception, arrogance, and family dysfunction. He was a king's son who overextended his reach and nearly brought his own dynasty to a bitter end. His name was Absalom. Absalom was the third son of King David. His mother was one of David's wives, a woman named Mahah. Now, because of the polygamy practiced during parts of ancient Israelite history, Absalom's family tree is pretty twisted. It's almost as confusing as Herod's lineage, which we discussed in the last episode. So I will try to condense this, not because his family tree is not only important to the story, but it's actually the crux of it. Everything rests on his father, his brothers, and one beloved sister. Okay, here we go. King David, of David and Goliath fame, married at least eight wives and several concubines. Most are not named, but we did discuss one of his wives, Abigail, in this season's first episode. Now, I am not exactly sure what childcare would have looked like in a royal household in ancient Israel— But I did learn while researching for this episode that the wives of kings of Israel were never given the title of queen. Now, Esther, who won a beauty contest to become queen, got married to the king of Persia, not Israel or Judah. Therefore, she was rightly named a queen. But in Israel, instead, the role of a queen mother is observed, with said mother playing a visible role at court, often serving as a counselor or advisor to her royal son primogeniture or the passing of wealth titles land and property to one's firstborn usually a son was not in place at the time of Absalom's birth therefore the chances of Absalom being the third-born son of a royal wife inheriting the kingdom were not as slim as one might think The book of 2 Samuel gives us some insight into the political intrigue bubbling under the surface of David's court. It also shares with us some unsavory and downright cruel actions taken by those trusted and loved by King David, first his sons. 2 Samuel 13 tells us the story of Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom. All three shared the same father, David, But Amnon had a different mother. Amnon, David's eldest son, had fallen hard for Tamar, for she was very beautiful. The Bible even describes him as a kind of lovesick over her in verse 2. Amnon and his cousin Yonadab come up with a plan for Amnon to have his way with Tamar. Amnon was to fake an illness and ask his father David to command Tamar to go see him to cook a meal for him. When David agrees, and Tamar obediently does so, Amnon gets her alone and corners her. Terrified, Tamar appeals to his sense of pride, reminding him that such things, rape and incest, were not to be done, and that once his actions were discovered, for surely they would be, he would be considered a great fool. She even begs him to talk to the king, who she was certain would make an exception to the laws and allow Amnon to take her as his wife. Instead, Amnon overpowers her and rapes her. Immediately afterward, he becomes disgusted with her and forces her to leave. Now, I don't have a degree in psychology, but I'm thinking that maybe this disgust he suddenly feels for the woman he thought he loved was actually him projecting his own self-loathing and anger onto her, but that's just a guess. At any rate, Amnon has committed two crimes here, and technically, per Mosaic Law, three. First, he has knowingly committed incest with his half-sister. Leviticus 18.9 specifically prohibits this. Second, of course, he has raped a woman and taken her virginity, and drastically reduced her chances of securing for herself a husband, and therefore a home and family of her own. Third, related to this crime, he has refused to marry his victim, a command given to men taking advantage of unmarried women in Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29. Now, I need to stop here, because I know some of my Smash the Patriarchy listeners are real fired up at this point. And actually, pretty much everyone should be fired up, because first... Amnon is a pretty horrifically awful guy, and yeah, the idea that a law existed to force rape victims to marry their attackers sounds unbelievably misogynistic and callous. It's a lot to work through, but we're going to slog through it. As I have said before, we need to look at the Bible as a whole rather than breaking it apart into pieces, believing they are not interconnected. In this time period and in this civilization among many others including greece and rome virginity was highly valued in women there were multiple reasons for this not the least of which was that if a man married a virgin he was far more likely to guarantee that the children produced from his marriage were his own in a culture that stresses the importance of familial lines and kinsmanship being able to accurately trace one's lineage was vital In fact, a big chunk of the Gospel of Mark is actually dedicated solely to listing the ancestry of Jesus of Nazareth in order to prove his claims of divinity as prophesied in the books of Isaiah and others. I'm not a rape apologist. I hate these laws. I hate the idea that they would even have to exist. But it's really, really important to note that nowhere in the Bible is a woman actually commanded to marry her rapist. This is a misconception I've heard more than once and even assumed it myself. But if we look at the words used in the original text, we see there is a difference between the ways certain acts are described. The verse that gets so many people worked up, Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 and 29, is... If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he's violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. The most common interpretation of this verse is the one we've all heard, that a woman is expected to marry her rapist. However, it's important to note the words used in the original text here. When the Bible is talking about something that is being taken with force or violence to seize or lay hold of, the verb used is shazach. In the verse above, the word used for the act is mutza, which means to encounter or to attain. It does not denote violence in the way that chazach does. In fact, the word "mutza" is the one used when the Bible mentions finding God after seeking him wholeheartedly. This does not sound like assault. It is more like discovery. Ultimately, the implication in the verse that everyone loves to hate is that if a man encounters an unmarried woman and either they have consensual sex or he seduces her, he's not allowed to abandon her afterward. Also, Exodus 22, verses 16 and 17, adds that a victim's father is under no obligation to force the marriage, but the violator still must provide monetary compensation to the woman's family. It was a law put in place not to shame or punish women, but to discourage men from taking advantage of unmarried women. In other laws regarding rape, the rapist is punished with death. For example, Deuteronomy 22 verses 25 through 27 states that a man who forces a virgin to lie with him will be killed, but the woman is to suffer no penalty whatsoever. I know it's still irritating to many of us to know that so many ancient and modern cultures place more value on a woman's virginity than anything else about her. That's not something that I can change. But hopefully looking at this verse in a context which is correct can help you understand that God never created a law that would force a woman to marry her rapist. That was a heck of a rabbit hole, but it had to be discussed sooner or later. And in talking about the cruelty of Amnon, it seems appropriate. And so with that, we head back to David's family and 2 Samuel 13. Tamar has been assaulted and humiliated, then upon that even further insulted by Amnon. When her full brother Absalom encounters her crying, he's already heard of the attack and he asks her to confirm it. He then takes her into his house and under his protection, but the scriptures still describe her as desolate in verse 20. Desolate can mean joyless, separated, deserted, or unable to be comforted. Tamar's virginity was taken, but so too was her future. She could not be married off without her purity, especially as a king's daughter. Amnon had taken away any dreams that she may have had of becoming a wife or mother. Since we can assume that she was a fairly young woman at the time of the attack, this is particularly heartbreaking. She could have had years of happiness or peace ahead of her, the joy of motherhood, or even welcoming her grandchildren someday. But all of that was stolen. But Absalom was planning on more than simply welcoming Tamar into his guest room. He said nothing to Amnon, but in that silence, he was seething with fury and hatred, outraged that his half-brother would even dream of doing something so terribly wrong. Like a spider, Absalom was carefully crafting a web to ensnare the king's firstborn son, which we will discuss in the next episode thank you for joining me today. If you like the show, please, please consider leaving a five-star review on whichever platform you use to listen. And I'd love to hear from you. I can be reached at retrofittedpodcast at gmail.com and also my brand new website at retrofittedpodcast.com where you can download and listen to all episodes of the show, as well as check out my latest blog posts. Last but not least, if you are considering financially supporting the podcast and its associated endeavors for as little as just $3 a month, please visit patreon.com slash Rebecca Godlove. As always, be wise and be well. theme song is Synthwave by Ryan Anderson.